Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 28th of May with me in Welsh. I've been at the Innovation Forum Future of Climate Action Conference this week. It was great to meet some listeners at the sessions and during the networking. To open the event, I was delighted to be part of a Q&A session with Julia King, Baroness Brown, who is Chair of the Carbon Trust and Chair of the Adaption Subcommittee of the UK's Committee on Climate Change, which is the statutory non-departmental body set up in 2008 to advise the United Kingdom and its devolved governments and parliaments on tackling and preparing for climate change. We talked about prospects for the upcoming COP26 meeting in Glasgow, potential outcomes, signs to look for that the meeting has been a success, and the possible implications for public policy around corporate greenhouse gas emissions. Also coming up is a discussion I had recently with the FSC's Climate Director, Pina Gervasi, about their work in helping companies develop supply chain visibility. We also talked about the value of ecosystem services and how companies can go about accessing their benefits. That's all to come. No news this week. That'll be back next time. Coming up in a few weeks is Innovation Forum's next Future of Food event. From the 15th to the 17th of June, you can hear from 50 business expert panellists, including from Unilever, PepsiCo, Mars, Bungie, Nestle and Tesco. As a special offer for podcast listeners, and if you're quick, you can save 20% on tickets if you register before close on the 20th of May. Just use special code SUB20 when you sign up. There's a link to the registration page in this podcast content summary. To launch Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action Conference this week, I was joined by Julia King, Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Chair of the Carbon Trust and of the Adaption Subcommittee of the UK Committee on Climate Change. We talked about some of the potential business implications and outcomes from the upcoming COP26 meeting. Everyone is getting very excited about the COP26 meeting in Glasgow this year, but just how important is it? And are there too many eggs in the COP-shaped basket? It is really important because time is running out. We have now, you know, less than 10 years, really, to 2030, where we have to not just get the commitments and the policies in place, but where we have to see real action if we're going to decarbonise both in the UK and globally. I think it's also particularly important because it's coming as everybody is hopefully turning to thinking very much about how do we build back after COVID um, and investments will be being made. And it is really crucial that those are net zero aligned, Paris trajectory aligned investments and that we don't go on perpetuating high carbon investments and infrastructure in that rush to help support economies after the pandemic. What are your hopes then from the meeting? What's, What's on your wish list? Well, I really hope that we see a really big step up in global commitments to net zero and to net zero around mid-century. I also hope we see a real increase in focus on adaptation because I think it's easy to think that if we're all on track for the Paris commitment of of well below two degrees and aiming for no more than 1.5 degrees of warming, then perhaps adaptation is something we no longer need to worry about. But unfortunately, we do need to continue to worry about. And of course, if you're in parts of the global south, things are very much more challenging. And yet adaptation is the real correlation, the real Cinderella of this. And in order to get a fairer transition, we need to be recognising the need for adaptation ourselves and supporting others to adapt. Is there a danger that everyone thinks, well, if we achieve the 1.5, trajectory, if we get to net zero, then everything will be fine. Whereas in fact, it's going to be a very different world. 
Yes, I mean, I think that's exactly the challenge. And, you know, it's absolutely crucial we get to net zero. Otherwise, the adaptation challenge gets almost impossible. But we still have to adapt alongside getting to net zero. And we still have to invest in adapting. And really, we need to make sure that all policy globally in the UK, of course, but globally, looks at not only the impact on emissions, but what will be the impacts of climate change on the delivery of that policy. We're hoping to rely an awful lot on nature-based solutions to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, but we have to remember that those nature-based solutions have got to be solutions that will function in a different climate. So when we're looking at planting trees in the UK, we need to recognise that in the second half of this century, things like Sitka spruce and even beech trees will be struggling to survive in the south of England because of periods of drought and increasing temperatures in the summer. So we've got to make sure that, that in using nature-based solutions, we're putting in place solutions that will still be healthy and will still be taking carbon out of the atmosphere in 2050 and beyond. That's absolutely a key point. The whole adaptation thing, as you say, has not been dealt with closely enough. What then from COP26 is for you the absolutely essential, the things that you must, must, must have after COP26? We want to see the reinforcement of the commitments we're now getting from the US and China, which are, of course, an enormous step forward in terms of our chances globally of staying well below two degrees and, and close to 1.5. We want to see countries like India and Australia uh, really coming on board, given we've just seen the International Energy Agency's plan for the decarbonising the energy system. Their move to saying we really do have to move away from fossil fuels. You know, this isn't something we can just talk about. We've really got to make it happen. A real recognition that the world has got that message and that is the track we're going to be moving on. How significant do you think that the IEA's announcement about just no more fossil fuels that came out last week, how big is that? I mean, for me, the IEA moved from being, in many regards, a lobbyist for the fossil fuels industry, big oil, etc., to now really, it's a really strikingly strong target that they're setting. So how significant for you is it? I think it's enormously powerful to have an analytical group of the capability and influence of the IEA and, as you say, with a history of being fairly cautious, particularly on the rate at which fossil fuels will be removed from the system, I think it's enormously powerful to have them come out with this report on the global path to net zero and enormously helpful. They've not left any light, have they? And it's quite stark, straightforward. It's got to end and immediately. Thinking in terms of the outcomes for COP26, what are you going to look for, the immediate signs that the meeting has been a success? Well, I suppose that we have had those commitments and that we start to see some very strong policy measures being announced globally. We had, interestingly, a meeting of global climate councils just last week. I think we will be getting together as a group of global climate councils to share experience and best practice. And I think to talk regularly about how we are holding our governments to account to make sure that they are delivering on the commitments, the NDCs, the announcements that are being made coming up to the COP. But I think it's really important that everybody, the general public, climate councils, that everybody is holding governments to account. I also think it's been encouraging to see companies signing up for the race to zero and for science-based targets. 
And I think quite often businesses can move much faster than governments can do. And I hope we'll start to see really strong business lobbying to get governments to move faster. We've had a history of business lobbying to stop governments doing these things. And I think the tide is turning. And, you know, business lobbying governments to say, get a move on, move faster, get the regulations changed, you know, do these things that will enable business to start really taking forward and accelerating this transition. That was going to be my next question. It does feel that the relationship has changed a bit. And I was thinking, or I was wondering really, on the climate change committee, how have you found the voices coming to you? Have you found that there are more and more business voices coming to you, pushing for faster change or pushing for you to advise on faster change? In the development of the, uh, first of all, our net zero report, and then the sixth carbon budget report, well, we did an enormous amount of consultation with business. And I think I was quite surprised at how rapidly business felt this change could be delivered if we had the right support and regulatory environments in place. Uh, and if governments were doing their bit to try and ensure that you know, we have a level playing field. I mean, I was in a discussion with, with Shell the other day. They were expressing some frustration in, oh, we can't start doing, you know, the, the government's looking at business cases for hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuel and what support mechanisms might need to be. And actually, one of the people from Shell said, we're so ready to do this. At the moment, we would just actually appreciate somebody saying, nope, there's just got to be 10% SAF in aviation fuels. Just make it happen. You know, they're saying we're ready to do it now. We just want to get on with it. That's good because Shell had the 30% shareholder resolution supporting moving mm. to faster zero carbon. Again, that's another thing that's happening. I mean, I think BP had a similar resolution, didn't they? That's really institutional investors now saying you've got to get on with this, which I guess another shift in momentum. Let's go back to thinking about business. What do you think are the key things that business needs to be thinking about in terms of their scope three supply chain emissions now? And then as we, we get past COP26 and into the subsequent uh, next year and beyond. We've heard all sorts of uh, stories in, in history about how, for example, the car industry has worked with its supply chain to raise quality standards and to help them drive cost out. Uh, I think it's now time for big businesses to be really working with their supply chains to help them see how they can find routes to drive carbon out and to become more sustainable in other ways as well. I think it's much harder for small and medium-sized companies who are often members of, who are often part of people's supply chains, to have the expertise in-house to do some of this thinking. And I think it's really critical that large companies support their supply chains in making this transition. But of course, you know, there's now a lot people can do in terms of deals to buy green and zero carbon electricity. There are, if absolutely essential, of course, opportunities for carbon offsetting, but that should absolutely be the last thing you do when you've done everything else you can. Energy efficiency, of course, certainly in the UK, there are still a number of schemes and people like the Energy Savings Trust and the Carbon Trust who can help advise on energy efficiency. And that's almost always an absolute win-win. It reduces your emissions and it reduces your costs. And I think there are an awful lot of ways of both reducing waste and reducing emissions, which are, well, energy efficiency, of course, is one of them, reducing energy waste. But reducing material waste and things, that can be hugely beneficial. Supply chain companies need advice from the companies they're supplying, but also need to be 
looking at where they can get advice. And there are, say, there are a number of government schemes. There are organisations like the Energy Savings Trust, like the Carbon Trust, and plenty of consultancies who can help support that too. And of course, we've all learnt that we can get by with a lot less travel and a lot less flying. So not only has everybody been pretty much saving money on their travel budgets, but they've been saving emissions there as well. Yes, it certainly does feel that we're all going to be doing a lot less flying going forward. Uh, those of us who are lucky enough to be travelling for business. What do you think are going to be the significant shifts we're going to see after COP26? Well, I hope we're going to see an acceleration of the policy to deliver net zero. In the UK, we're promised the government's net zero strategy coming out very shortly. I think we're expecting the government's hydrogen strategy coming out in the summer. So we're going to have a flurry of new policy announcements. I hope we will also see government departments working together, working across government and looking at not just the obvious, you know, the net zero strategy, but actually starting to look at every piece of policy and regulation and looking at what the climate change implications of it are and indeed how it will be influenced by our need to adapt. So things like I chair the Independent Climate Commission for our local combined authority in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. And one of the things there is many local authorities are still looking at road provision in terms of predict and provide. Well, that's going to increase the amount we drive and we need to be targeting decreasing it. We need to be targeting not only a transition to low emission, zero emission vehicles, but also reducing the uh, amount we drive by something like 15% by uh, 2050. You're not going to do that if you simply look at how many people in the new housing that you're building and saying, well, that means we need this many more roads. We've got to think differently. We've got to really make sure that climate thinking is going through every policy and and regulatory decision that's made right across government. There seems to be some still two directions around some elements of transportation. Funnily enough, I was just listening to Radio 2 before we started the session and on the Jeremy Vine show there was a phone in about the difficulties of charging electric cars if you don't have somewhere to park it off the street. So I thought it was quite an extraordinary transition that that sort of show is talking about the kind of challenges around electrification of domestic transport. Do you see potential for the fact that we seem to have had a sort of by the back door renationalisation of the railways in the UK? Is there an opportunity for the government to then use that fact to move us back onto the railways, to make the railways be the way that we transport ourselves around a bit more again? I think there is a big and understandable challenge of getting people back onto public transport. Clearly, people with good reason have felt extremely nervous about public transport. Clearly, we've heard that one of the things that they'll be holding the providers of the service to is cleanliness standards. And that's going to be a very big part, I think, of people feeling secure and comfortable on the rail and on public transport again. And it is absolutely essential that we get people back onto public transport if we're going to meet our climate change targets. Anecdotally, it does feel that people are being back traveling around but everyone is taking their own personal transportation i was on a train recently traveling into london and it was, it was i had the train to myself yet you go in the roads and the roads feel that they're as busy as they were so clearly there's still quite a long way to go it's absolutely true in london isn't it i'm in london today i'm quite often in cambridge but i'm actually in london today and as you say the public transport is relatively empty but the roads are packed I'm going to come to the first question. It's one from um, Oliver Hurry. He asks how you feel legislation and or policy can help businesses act and unlock the paralysis on driving supply chain emissions reduction. So what, what can legislation and or policy do to help? 
I think one of the things we need to be thinking about is how do we make sure there is a level playing field for UK suppliers? Because we're driving the net zero agenda perhaps faster than some other countries are, or certainly faster than some other countries are, that may well be adding costs for some suppliers. Uh, and we need to be thinking about how do we ensure level playing field versus imports. And I think that's something we should be thinking about in every trade deal we're doing. It's interesting that our trade deal with the European Union, I think, is one of the first global trade deal to have climate change embedded in it, that we've both sides have got to keep to the same strong targets to reduce emissions. And I think we should be looking at that in all trade deals to make sure that UK suppliers don't get undercut. We should even be thinking about border carbon tax adjustments. There are certainly maybe it would be worth looking at mandatory carbon footprinting for parts of supply chains, because that, of course, would then give appropriate support to those who were reducing their CO2 emissions fastest. But I think all of those things should be in the melting pot and governments should be thinking about them. And on the other hand, of course, supporting industries to decarbonize so that some of those costs can be defrayed. And of course, using the British Business Bank to leverage investment to support decarbonization of industry. Because the last thing, of course, we want to happen is to see industry moving overseas to higher carbon countries and just basically exporting our emissions. You mentioned border carbon tax adjustments. Is, is that like a, a carbon tariff at the border when you're importing goods? Essentially, yes. If UK steel had decarbonized and that was adding additional cost to UK steel, then steel coming in from anywhere else that had a higher carbon footprint would attract a carbon tax at the border, yes. It's the level playing field that you were yes, talking yeah. about. What do you think in the UK and perhaps more globally, how far do you see a move towards mandatory emissions reporting and targeting for scope one and two and for scope three? It's one of those challenging areas because we'd need to move a long way in terms of agreeing precisely how this should be done. And I think we're not there, to be honest, on quite a lot of this. We're certainly not there on offsetting and how you count offsets and carbon removals and all of those key areas. I think we're a long way from that. I would really prefer to see companies signing up for things like the science-based targets and consumers saying, this is what we want. You know, we want to see the products on our supermarket shelves telling us with some kind of accredited stamp, but it doesn't have to be a government requirement. I think the public have a big role to play in this. We are seeing companies like Danone and, and others actually seeing there's a real benefit to being ahead of the game on this, that that's what consumers are asking for and they think there's a competitive advantage to doing that. Of course, we will move from it being a competitive advantage to being just a hurdle you have to get over to be on the supermarket shelf. It's good to see that move starting to happen. It does always strike me a little bit odd that you, uh, as a retailer, makes well, here are low carbon products over here. Well, what about the other ones? Are you saying these, these are the high carbon products? It's kind of, it, it, but yes, as you say, I think it'll come to the point that everybody will have to get there. We are coming towards the end of our time. I just wondered, in closing then, how do you think momentum will be maintained in 2022 and beyond? What are the key things that really will just keep this moving forward? I mean, we're big, progress has been made, but you know, what are the things you want to see to really keep things moving on? I think you hit on a really important point there. I mean, we've had so much hype and almost competition to make announcements in the run-up to COP. And I think, how do we keep that momentum, that sort of excitement, that feeling that change is happening? How do we keep that going? 
because that's absolutely critical. And that's certainly one of the things that we discussed at the meeting of climate councils. You know, how are we going to keep pressure on our governments by monitoring government progress and delivery very, very closely? And that's certainly one of the things that the Committee on Climate Change is going to be doing. I think we also need the support of the media to hold governments to account and to keep the public informed about what's going on. And we need to maintain the public engagement. Hopefully we will see more of school children making their voices heard and Greta Thunberg and some of her young colleagues being the conscience of the world because this is the world that they are going to inherit and we all need to make sure it will be absolutely fit for them to live in. Interesting point around, around media. Do you agree that the kind of the agenda has shifted so far that it, it's almost now impossible to imagine mainstream media and others standing against, you know, we don't have to do any of this. It's all a figment of someone's imagination. I mean, it really feels that that argument isn't being had anymore, thank goodness. You only have to read the Financial Times to see how many articles it covers every day on climate change and how much they are oriented towards this is what companies need to be doing and uh, this is what shareholders are expecting. I think that, you know, the country has moved to recognising the need to change. It's just that when other things come along after the COP, we've got to make sure this stays at the top or very close to the top of the agenda and doesn't slip down to being something everybody thinks is important, but it isn't what's most important today. And of course, that combined with the recovery from COVID is going to be challenging at times, but we've got to make it a green recovery. Well, let's hope that COP26 does go ahead. It does seem that there's a momentum towards holding the event and it's just going to be a question of working out the nuts and bolts as to as what that will look like. But certainly it should hopefully go ahead in Glasgow later in the year. A few days ago, I spoke with Pina Gervasi, Climate Director FSC, the Forestry Stewardship Council, following up some of the conversations from the recent Sustainable Textiles and Apparel Conference and thinking about the evolving role of certification schemes for transparency and certainty in supply chains. We're going to reflect a little bit on some of the conversations from Innovation Forum's recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference and a bit about FSC's work more broadly. So FSC has been around for some time now, but many still associate it with certified paper and packaging. Well, of course, you do an awful lot more. What are some of the other ways that FSC helps companies develop more visibility in supply chains? I'm thinking perhaps about your work in the rubber sector, for example. In particular, regarding the textile and apparel industry, FSC can support companies to deliver more climate-friendly supply chains. I think through two different ways beyond others. One is helping companies to transition towards circularity. FSC has a recycle label, which shows that the materials used come from responsible forest management, but also from recycled materials. And responsible forest management for FSC means social, environmental, and economic benefits being delivered on the ground. The second way to support companies and that companies can deliver better climate impacts is to utilize more forest-based raw materials. And this is not just for the paper and packaging sector. We see a lot of companies in the textile and apparel sector already committed to get all FSC certified material for their paper and packaging but there are more supply chains connected to the textile industry. Uh, the use of rubber for the manufacturing of footwear. We already have companies that are producing FSC certified footwear with natural rubber. The use of bamboo for textiles, this is another example. But in general, it's not only the raw material, I mean the, the textile 
possibilities, but also, for example, the construction industry that is quite significant for the textile industry as well, all the construction of stores around the world with certified materials that can deliver as well social and environmental impacts for the people who are providing those. The message here, I think, is to diversify most of the supply chains connected to the textile and apparel industry and use raw materials that come from forests and are sustainably produced. It strikes me that with certification, you're enhancing certainty in the supply chain and transparency. So what are the certainties then specifically that come with FSC certification? First of all, FSC certification gives a message to the consumer about the origin of the materials that the product has been manufactured with. And that means that that material comes from responsible forest management that balances social, environmental, and economic benefits on the ground. If I can put the example of the rubber industry that you mentioned before, the rubber industry, 90% of the global production comes from smallholders and communities in developing countries. And FSC is now working quite close to these producers to scale up the rubber supply and connect this rubber supply to companies that are committed. For example, those footwork companies that I mentioned before. So the impact that this is creating on the ground, social impacts, positive impacts, biodiversity conservation in those areas is quite significant because rubber is being, 90% of all rubber is being produced only in six countries all over the world. Constructing these value chains, it's a big challenge, but we are committed and working on that. The second one, in terms of transparency in the supply chain, all FSC certified products can be verified in our public database. So if you buy a product that has the FSC label, you can actually see where this product is coming from. And this is increasing transparency also in all supply chains. And the third way, I think, is the delivery of positive impacts. We created a way to verify positive impacts on the ground in the forest. And this includes biodiversity conservation, carbon sequestration, water conservation, soil protection, and also ecotourism activities. Through the FSC standards, companies can report on these positive impacts that can be connected to their own suppliers as well. How are you seeing companies change the way they engage in transparency with regards to their force-related value chains. How is that changing? Responsible sourcing policies need to have more clarity in terms of commitments towards certification and certified materials, not only the paper and packaging sector, but also the materials used in the, in the chain, as textiles, for example. The other way, as I mentioned before, is to improve impact reporting. I think that we are entering in a decade that it's not enough just to say that you are doing things great, but that you need to actually report on the impacts that your actions are created for the people, the animals and the forests. And third of all, diversify the value chains connected to those commitments. As for example, construction, textile production, paper and packaging, and there may be others. The narrative is that companies are engaging more in these matters, they're more concerned, they want to kind of really get to grips with these issues. Do you see that yourself on the ground? Is that the direction of travel that you see? Yes, sure. I think that. And we have clear examples for that. For example, H&M, which has publicly committed with FSC certification through their responsible sourcing policy to buy FSC certified material and raw materials, in particular cellulose-based fiber. And also, I think that sustainability is more than a trend now. It's a way to do business. And we are seeing that every day. 
also the companies are more committed to be part of campaigns such as the campaign that H&M participated in that was called Fashion Love by Forest uh, through the Canopy Style Initiative. So more companies joining the Canopy Style Initiative and getting commitments to sourcing sustainable materials. And I think the communication to consumers and campaigns is very important to raise awareness, tell the stories behind the products and create better connection between the suppliers and the consumers. Yes, it's an interesting point that, as you see, brands getting involved in campaigning means that they really then have to be credible. That They can't then not be doing the sort of things that need to be done because they, they will be they'll be found out and that they can have a PR disaster on their hands. Yeah, and FSC certification is a credibility tool. We hear a lot about the importance of thinking in terms of the value of ecosystem services is something you've mentioned already. How can companies best go about getting the value right in terms of thinking about ecosystem services? Well, as we are now passing through a pandemic crisis, but also a climate crisis, it is real need that people understand that nature has a value and somebody has to pay for it. In FSC, we created in 2018 a new procedure to extend the scope of FSC certification to ecosystem service, going one step forward from our performance standards uh, to a way to verify positive impacts on the ground. If you want to say we're going from performance to impact verification, the way that we are doing it is allowing companies in many sectors, not only the forestry sector, but it's quite interesting. We have a wine company that has their wineries in the same habitat of of a, a very ancient forest in Chile that they are conserving. And they have certified the ecosystem with the ecosystem services and FSC because they want to tell their customers, in particular in Europe and the US, that the wine that they're buying from comes from these areas where ecosystem services such as biodiversity and carbon are being maintained. You will say that wine has, doesn't have anything to do with forests, but yes, it does. So, I mean, that's one. We are seeing more companies that are out of the timber, let's say, sector and more in different sectors being more interested on verifying and declaring how their activities are really maintaining those ecosystem services. And biodiversity, I think it's a big one that is coming. Carbon is, is of course, obvious because every big company in the world has climate commitments connected to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, carbon sequestration. But water, biodiversity and soil are key ecosystem services that need to be maintained also to support the life of people. It's interesting, obviously the concept of terroir is one that's big in the wine sector, but why wouldn't they want to demonstrate, look, we have this ancient forest, because that's all part of the landscape that produces that particular wine. Interesting that they feel that they need to go to him to you guys to help help demonstrate that credibility. Okay, let's think a bit about the future. I mean, obviously certification has its detractors. There was a recent Greenpeace report that was negative on pretty much every certification provider, every certifier. For you then, I mean, what are the ways that FSC and other certification bodies can counter these criticisms and really help business going forward? What are the prospects that you're most excited about? Yeah, I think one step forward is what I mentioned before, this moving from performance to impact verification, because then you will see with a baseline how these forest management activities certified by FSC are actually delivering positive impacts over time on these critical ecosystem services. So that's one way. Companies are also tending to improve their impact reporting activities. So these tools are quite relevant and can be very useful for that. But we're also working in different projects to increase the transparency 
in FSC supply chains through technology and data sharing. So we have several projects that look for that. A project called FSC on the map that look to identify where are FSC certified areas in the world and the use of blockchain for improved traceability. And we're also improving the data provision, data quality, but also including other types of data such as carbon, for example, or ecosystem services data in our certification. I mean, these are the sort of things that companies are coming to you and saying, this is where we need help. You know, what can FSC do about it? Yes, we have the ability to provide forest-related information. And I think that the information is verified on the ground, but it's certainly a big need to work with others and co-create these solutions together. I mean, we are not a technology company, but we are quite supported as well and have some projects that look to improve the technology used in the forestry sector to increase transparency and credibility. So I think these emerging sectors that have not been so much related to forestry and responsible forest management are being more active and supportive of these type of projects. Okay, well, it's an exciting time. There's obviously huge amounts of work to do, but it does seem that the solutions are being put in place to really get to grips for businesses without deal with their forest supply chains or forest-related supply chains. But for now, Pina Gervasi, Climate Director at the Forest Stewardship Council, thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much, Ian. And as ever, look out at innovationforum.co.uk for all the usual audio interviews and insight. Look out for a new piece of analysis on why the devil is in the detail when it comes to deforestation data. But that's all for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>